So today we're starting, I'm going to start a, a new series um, through the book of Philippians. Um, I've been praying about this for a while since I finished James. Um, Doke kind of mentioned this in passing to me, and the more that I thought about it, the more that I prayed about it, the more excited I got about this short little book. It's an interesting book. It's a letter written by Paul. Um, we'll get to some of the details in a minute, but uh, I'm excited about where, where we're going to go with this. Now, um, today won't, we're not actually going to be in the letter itself. We'll get um, to it kind of at the end where I'm going to highlight some things. But instead, today, we're going to focus on what's behind the letter. And so this is going to be a bit different today, I'll be honest with you. Um, a lot of um, kind of historical background stuff that I want to look at that I think is important information that will help us on this road um, as we begin to walk down it and as we begin to walk verse by verse through the letter um, next time. So this, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Philippi. So that's, that's where we're going to start today. That's where we're going to begin to take our look. So let's take a brief look at the city of Philippi. Philippi historically started as a, just a settlement. It was a settlement called Crenides, started in about 360 B.C. In its early beginnings, it was a gold mining town, but it was also in a very strategic location. And in 356 B.C., Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, he saw the importance of the location militarily, and he took the area, and he renamed the city after himself, calling it Philippi. He enlarged the city at that time with considerable construction, and many new inhabitants. And then in the second century BC, Philippi became part of the Roman Empire, or the, it became part of the Roman province of Macedonia. And then for the next kind of two centuries, it existed in relative obscurity. But then one of the most famous events in Roman history brought it to recognition and expansion in 42 BC. This is when the Battle of Philippi took place. It was a battle between the forces of Antony and Octavian, where they defeated the forces of Brutus and Cassius following an assassination of Julius Caesar two years prior. So the battle brought to an end the Roman Republic and began ushering in the Roman Empire. Octavian, who was an adopted son of Julius Caesar, became the first emperor of Rome and was later granted the name Augustus by the Roman Senate. Caesar Augustus, name may sound familiar, he's mentioned in Luke chapter 2, and he's the one who issued a decree that all the world should be registered, which sent Mary and Joseph on the trek to Bethlehem, where, jo where Jesus was born. Augustus made Philippi a Roman colony, which gave the city many advantages over most other cities in the empire. Its citizens had an autonomous government, they were immune from paying taxes, and they were treated the same as if they actually lived in Italy. It was the chief city of the area of Macedonia, and it was known as Little Rome. It was so much like Rome that many Roman soldiers retired there, making Philippi their home, never returning to Italy. The city was also situated along the Via Ignatia, which was the main road from Rome to Asia, which again made it a very strategically important for a number of reasons, 
including the spreading of the gospel into Europe. And we'll look at that today. So that's some background information on the city itself. The background to the book of Philippians is found in Acts chapter 16. So if you would turn there with me, that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. Um, We're going to um, look at the church at Philippi and its beginnings. Now, over the last few weeks, as I've been kind of studying this, um, just really enjoyed it and found it very fascinating to look. I'm not a, I'm not a huge history buff. I know some of y'all in here are big history geeks and you like this kind of stuff. Um, I'm not one that would go looking at history necessarily, but in studying this, I've just found it to be very fascinating at how all this took place. And so over the course of the Apostle Paul's life, he took three missionary journeys. We read about them in the book of Acts. The first is found in chapters 13 and 14. The second one begins at the end of chapter 15 and goes through chapter 18, verse 22. And then the third missionary journey begins in chapter 18, verse 23, and goes through the end of chapter 20. We're going to look at the second missionary journey today, or a portion of it, the initial phases of it. And so look at me with, look with me at Acts chapter 15. We're going to start reading in verse 36. Before I start reading, I'm going to get back up just a little bit more. At the beginning of chapter 15, Paul is in Rome. He's come back from his first missionary journey. And the Jerusalem council is meeting at this time. Paul's there. He's listening. He's giving input and things like that. Um, When you get to verse, uh, let's see, got to need my glasses. Verse 22, um, they send Paul and Barnabas up to Antioch. And so when we get to verse 36, this is where we find them, okay? Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. So verse 36, read with me. It says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. All right, so John Mark had started off on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. But he leaves them when they get to Pamphylia and heads back to Jerusalem. Now, not much, not much is made of this when it's originally mentioned in Acts chapter 13. But this was obviously very significant to Paul. As we've just read, when it comes to head out on this second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to bring John Mark with them, but Paul wants no part of it. This causes, as we've read, a sharp disagreement between the two of them to the point that they agree to go their separate ways. Barnabas takes John Mark with him. They head out to Cyprus. And Paul chooses another guy who is there named Silas who heads out with them. Verse 41 says they travel through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So at this point of the journey, they're revisiting churches that were started during the first missionary journey. We get to chapter 16, verse 1 we find that Paul and Silas come into Derby and then Lystra. 
These are two cities in a region north of Antioch. And Lystra is the home of Timothy. Okay, so I want, I'm going to show you a map. It's going to be kind of small, but hopefully you can see it. Karis, if you can go to the map. Um, you can kind of see, this is the Mediterranean Sea. Down here is Jerusalem, Caesarea. Up here is Antioch. So this is where they started out from. They made their way through, it says Cilicia and Syria, um, which is both of these areas. And they make their way to Derby and then to Lystra. Okay, Lystra's right there. That's where uh, the home of Timothy is. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. Read with me verses 16, uh, chapter 16, 1 through 5. It says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them uh, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Timothy here is called a disciple indicating that there was already a relationship here. So Paul would have met Timothy, his mother Eunice, his grandmother Lois, on the first missionary journey when churches were planted in that region. (coughs) Timothy goes on to be a very significant person in Paul's life. And as we'll see, he's mentioned by name in the book of Philippians. So the traveling team grows here as Timothy joins Paul and Silas. And they travel throughout this region, again, continuing to strengthen the churches that had already been planted and bringing reports of decisions that were made there uh, at at the Jerusalem Council. Paul then hits a roadblock. He wants to go to one direction, but the Holy Spirit has other plans. So let's keep reading. Beginning in verse 6. It says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Okay, so let's go back to the map real quick. Okay, so they were in Lystra where they picked up Timothy. They traveled through this region of Galatia and made their way this direction. So Paul wanted to go down to the kind of the southwest and the west into this region of Phrygia. And he wanted to go over to Ephesus. This was what was called Asia Minor. So this is modern day Turkey, western part of modern day Turkey. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit prohibited him him from going there, okay? Then he wanted to go, he said, okay, so let's go up to the north. This is Bithynia, up to the northern part of modern-day Turkey along the Black Sea. Again, Scripture says that he was prevented from going that direction. So the only other direction that he has to go, he can't go west, he can't go north, so he heads to the northwest to Troas, which was a a major port city, okay? So that's that's where we picked him up. He wanted to go to Asia. The Holy Spirit wouldn't allow it. What that looked like 
in terms of the Holy Spirit not allowing him, the scriptures don't tell us. But it was very evident to Paul that he was not to head that direction. Um, Paul would eventually get to Ephesus. Um, He would do that on the trip back on this missionary journey, but he was prevented from going there at this point. And same thing with going north to Bithynia. He wanted to go that direction. Um, Says the Spirit of Jesus prevented him from doing it. Again, we don't know what that looked like, um, but it was obvious to him that he was not to go that direction. So they traveled to the northwest to the port city of Troas. When they got to Troas that night, Paul, it says, Paul received a vision of a man from Macedonia. Macedonia is on the other side of the Aegean Sea to the north of Turkey in what would be considered today modern-day Europe into Greece. We'll look at that on the map again in a minute. But um, Troas was a significant port city, and it was a city that Paul visited on several occasions during his journeys. Now, the interesting thing that I found to think about, and I, I pose this question not having an answer, but something to consider, is this the hometown of Luke? Now, Luke's a fascinating character in the New Testament. We don't know much about him at all, um, which is frustrating um, to say the least. But he shows up here in Troas and he joins the team. How do we know this? Well, look at verse 10. It says, When Paul had seen the vision, this vision of the man from Macedonia, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now notice the change in pronouns. Prior to this account, the account of Acts, the story of Paul's journeys, was told in the third person plural. They did this. They did that. Now here in verse 10, the pronoun changes to first person plural says, we sought to go into Macedonia. This happens a couple of times in the book of Acts, indicating when Luke joins the team and when he stops traveling with them. So it's just something interesting to think about. Luke was in Troas at the time. Was that his hometown? We don't know. But the possibility is there. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and now Luke... Look to travel up to Philippi. So let's go back to the map. They're going to cross the Aegean Sea. So they're at Troas. They're going to, this is the Aegean Sea right here. They're going to cross by boat over to the city of Neapolis. They're going to stay the night. I don't know if you can see that. There's a little island in the Aegean Sea called Samothrace. We'll read about that in a second. Um, and then they're going to make their way up to Philippi. So read with me. Starting in verse 11. So, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira and a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. 
the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So they set sail from Troas, stopped at Samothrace for the night. Again, that's an island in the Aegean Sea. The next day they landed at Neapolis, which was the port city for Philippi. And then they made their way to Philippi, which is about 10 miles inland. So keep in mind, this is unchartered territory for Paul. It's also unchartered territory for the gospel. The gospel is first introduced to Europe when Paul and his team cross the Aegean Sea. Now Paul, you can read about this uh, along Paul's first missionary journey. He had a pattern that he followed when taking the gospel into new towns and cities. He would first visit the local synagogue. However, he gets to Philippi and it says that they went down to the riverside on the day of the Sabbath indicating that there was not a synagogue in the city. Philippi was a Gentile city with very few Jews. Interestingly, there were not even 10 Jewish men who were households or head of households in the city because that was the minimum that was required to form a synagogue. So you can see it's very much a Gentile city, very few Jews if any at all. So they go down by the river where they meet a group of women, including this woman named Lydia. Lydia was from the city of Thyatira, which is back across the Aegean Sea. It's on the mainland of Turkey, uh, modern-day Turkey. And you may recognize the name. It's one of the seven churches that is mentioned in the early chapters of the book of Revelation. The text here describes her as a seller of purple goods, making her a businesswoman who was likely very well off. Purple dye was expensive, and purple clothes were worn by royalty and those who were wealthy. The text also describes Lydia as a worshiper of God, which probably means that she was a Jewish proselyte, meaning a Gentile convert to Judaism. So when Paul proclaimed the gospel to Lydia and those with her, it says God sovereignly opened Lydia's heart and she believed. Lydia became the first convert to Christ in Europe. She was baptized, her household as well, and then they invited Paul and his team to come and stay at her house. So let's keep reading. Verse 16. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. 
The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, there's not an indication here of how much time elapses between verses 15 and 16. Was it the next day? Was it days later? Was it weeks later? We, we just don't know. And I don't know that it's overly important. But it's interesting to think about. How much time did Paul spend here in Philippi? It doesn't appear that it was an extended period of time. But in their time there, they seem to have established a pattern of going back to this place of prayer. Perhaps to engage others with the gospel or to disciple Lydia and her household and others who may have come to faith. But for several days, as they made their way to the place of prayer by the riverside, this slave girl with a spirit of divination would follow them and cry out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. In the name of Jesus, Paul commands this spirit to come out of the girl and it comes out. Another side note here. What, came, what became of this girl? Scripture doesn't indicate one way or another. Did she become a believer and part of the newly formed church at Philippi? We don't know. Again, just something interesting to think about. But the casting out of this demon shook this city. And Paul and Silas are dragged before the magistrates where they are accused of disturbing the city. They're accused of disturbing the peace. They were beaten with rods and they were thrown in prison. Now, this isn't just a simple slap on the back. They're beaten, probably to within inches of their life, with rods. Something else to keep in mind here is that there's two other guys, remember, that are traveling with Paul and Silas. We have Luke and Timothy who are still with us, and yet they are not mentioned here. They're not mentioned in the beating. They're not mentioned in the imprisonment. But did you notice that? Notice what the men said who dragged Paul and Silas before the magistrates. They said they, they identified Paul and Silas as Jews. Now, we do know that anti-Semitism was alive and well in that day. And I read an interesting footnote in the MacArthur Study Bible about this. He made note that Emperor Claudius, emperor at the time, had issued an order around that time expelling all Jews from Rome. Acts 18 verse 2 actually mentions this. And so this might explain why they apprehended only Paul and Silas, since Luke was a Gentile and Timothy was a half-Gentile. His father was a Greek. So this is probably the likely explanation as to why only Paul and Silas were dragged before the magistrates. So let's keep reading again, verse 25. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. 
And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Verse 25 is a verse that never ceases to amaze me when I read it. Paul and Silas, it says, were praying and singing hymns to God. The beating that they had been taken, that, that, they, had, that they had taken was severe. They were put in stocks. Now, this isn't kind of the Old West type stocks where you have your hands and your head. And this is different. This is related to stocks on your feet where they stretch your legs out been a very uncomfortable position to be in. They're in stocks in the inner prison, which was probably one of the nastiest places that we could imagine. And yet here they are, they're praying and they're singing hymns to God. That is amazing in and of itself. But the other amazing thing is that this verse says that the prisoners were listening to them. They were listening to the prayers being prayed and the songs that were being sung. Several miracles occurred at that prison that night, and I think that that is one of them. That's not normal prison behavior. It's midnight. They're singing songs and they're praying. And the prisoners aren't yelling at them to shut up. They're not yelling or They're just listening. Then another miracle happens. God caused an earthquake. Cell doors are opened miraculously. Chains fall off miraculously. But an even greater miracle is that no one left. All the doors had been opened. Bonds were broken. None of the prisoners left. Paul cries out to the jailer, We are all here. I think if he he was just referring to himself and Silas, he he would have said, we're both here. But he says, we are all here, which seems to indicate that all the prisoners stayed there. And then the greatest miracle of all happens. The jailer comes and he falls at the feet of Paul and Silas and asks an amazing question, what must I do to be saved? Now, he'd been sitting in that prison that night. He'd been listening to those prayers. He'd been listening to those songs. He may have been present when the demon-possessed girl was walking through the city saying that these men can show you the way to salvation. We don't know. But he comes to Paul and Silas and asks the simple question, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas shared the gospel with the jailer and his household, and late in the night they believed and are baptized. All right, let's finish this section up. Read with me again, starting in verse 35. It says, When it was day, 
the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I won't spend a lot of time here, but just a few things to kind of wrap up this section. Paul revealed to the jailer that he and Silas were Roman citizens. This put fear in the hearts of the magistrates because they knew that they could get in serious trouble if it was reported that they had beaten unjustly condemned and imprisoned Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and asked them to leave the city. Scripture tells us then that they visited Lydia and others who had come to faith and had formed the first church in Europe to encourage them, and then they left. Now, did you notice as we read this chapter, that the pronouns changed again. Back in verse 10, remember, the pronouns changed to we and us, indicating that Luke had joined the team. Verse 19, it goes back to they and them, as Paul and Silas are put in prison. And it it remains that way. So what happens to Luke? This has had me kind of fascinated all week. And again, I I don't have an answer for you. But, by all indication, it seems that Luke stays in Philippi. We do know that, le- that Luke later rejoins the team when Paul comes back that direction in Acts chapter 20, verse 5. This is on Paul's third missionary journey. At that point in time, Luke meets them in Troas, and they travel on together from there. Now, the time gap between Paul leaving Philippi on this first occasion... At the end of chapter 16, and Luke rejoining them at the beginning of chapter 20 is probably about five or six years. Could it be that Luke remained in Philippi to pastor the first church in Europe? I read a couple of commentaries that said that very thing. One was very confident in his statement. I don't know. But I find it interesting to think about that Luke could have been the first pastor of the church at Philippi. Another reason why I think that might be possible is because the indication is that Paul's time in Philippi is not lengthy. On his first missionary journey, he tended to spend pretty significant amounts of time in the places that he traveled to in order to help establish the churches, in order to help put leadership in position, that sort of thing. And I just wonder if he didn't feel the need to do that on this occasion because he had Luke who he was leaving behind. I don't know. Something to think about that I find very fascinating. Okay, that's the history, that's the background of how the church at Philippi got started. And I think it's important that we understand that as we prepare to walk through this letter In the remainder of our time this morning, I want to look at some of the reasons why Paul wrote the letter and then to look at some of the themes of the letter. So let's let's start with the reasons first. 
Why did Paul write this letter? Okay, this letter was written during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, which lasted two years. He was under house arrest there, um, but he was free to preach the gospel without hindrance during this time, um, just that his movements were limited. He seems to indicate in chapter 2, if you want to, you, want to, you can turn over to Philippians now, because I'm going to make reference to several verses, several sections, so if you want to turn over there, you can follow along as we go. But he seems to indicate in chapter 2 that he feels that a decision would be made in his case pretty soon. And so this points to the letter being written towards the end of his imprisonment, which, is, um, which probably puts the writing, the date of the writing around 61 A.D. So this would be about 10 years probably since he first came through Philippi with Silas, Timothy, and Luke. So one of the first reasons for him writing this letter is to thank them for their generous gifts and for their partnership with him in the gospel. The Philippians had helped Paul on several occasions by giving him financial assistance, and they had sent a gift to him at Rome through a man called Epaphroditus. If you're, at, if you're in Philippians now, look at uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Then chapter 4, verse 15 says this, And you, Philippians, yourselves, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul has been in partnership with the church at Philippi from the very beginning. They've had his back and have encouraged him and supported him through the years. Paul wanted them to know that he was doing okay and that he was grateful for their support over the years. Second reason that he wanted to write them is concerning Timothy and Epaphroditus. He wanted to let them know that he intends to send Timothy to them so that he can check on them and send word back to Paul. In addition, he's also letting them know why he's sending Epaphroditus back to them. Because they had sent him to Paul to care for him, um, that's, and he wanted to know why he's sending him back. By sending Epaphroditus back, it also gives them um, an opportunity. Um, he get, excuse me, it gives him an opportunity to send this letter with someone. So um, I didn't write this down, but let's look at Philippians chapter two. I'm not going to read all of this, but um, start verse 19. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So he wants Timothy to, to report back and send word of how they're doing. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Jump down to verse 25. 
says, I have also thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So he's writing to let them know, I'm sending Timothy to you. They would know Timothy because he was with Paul when they first came through and had probably been back there at other points in time as well. And that he's also sending Epaphroditus back to them, someone that they had sent his direction. All right, third reason. Third reason for writing is to warn against false teaching. Paul did this in a number of his letters, warning the churches that he was writing to of false teachers. Paul had seen and addressed false teaching numerous times. Now, there's no evidence that there was false teaching taking place at Philippi. It's just something that he felt was important to issue a warning for and to remind them to be on the lookout for those evildoers who would distort and destroy the true gospel. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2 says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then the fourth reason why he's writing is a call for unity in the church. As far as we know, the Philippian church had no major doctrinal issues, but there was a spirit of division among some of the members, especially among two women who had a personality conflict. Look at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul exhorts to unity throughout the whole letter, and we'll look at some of that in time. But one thing to note here is that division and strife can ruin the testimony of a local church. And this is what Paul was warning against, encouraging these ladies to come back together. Lastly, today, I want to highlight two themes in the book of Philippians. I want to start by looking at a specific theme, what I think is the specific theme of the book, which is joy. And this is the reason why I'm calling this series Joy, A Journey Through Philippians. Constant references to joy or rejoicing are found throughout the book, some 16 times, in fact. The word rejoicing or joy is found. And this is particularly important because Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. And yet he could rejoice in his circumstances. He didn't let circumstances master him, but he allowed Christ to rule the circumstances for him. This letter is a great encouragement to anyone who is down or discouraged. If you're here today and that describes you, I just want to highly encourage you to read this short letter. 
Read it numerous times. You can read it in less than 15 minutes. Paul rose above his negative circumstances and he was able to experience joy. As we walk through this little letter, we will find instruction on how to live victoriously and joyously in the midst of the difficulties of life. And we all know that life can be difficult. And yet in the midst of difficulties, we can and we should choose joy. So that's the specific theme of the book. We're going to see that throughout. But there's also a general theme that I want to cover for a few minutes as we begin to wrap up. General theme is Christ. He is mentioned as Lord or Jesus Christ over 50 times in this little book. The name Christ or Jesus Christ occurs 17 times in the first chapter alone. The message that's found in this letter for Christians is that Jesus is available for helping us cope with the problems of life. I want to point out four key verses that kind of highlight this general theme. The first one is chapter 1, verse 21 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ is our life. This is not the cry of a man fed up with life and longing for heaven. It's the rejoicing of a man who has learned to live life with its continual adventure and excitement because Christ is living the life with him. For Paul, death is just the crowning of the fullness of life in Christ. Christ is our life. Secondly, chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ is our example. We're going to see that when we get to that passage. Phenomenal section of Scripture. Chapter 2, 5 through 11. And I look forward to digging into that with you. But Christ is our example. In context, this is about learning the humility of Christ in our daily lives. Christ sacrificed himself for others. He came to serve others. As Christians, we are to pattern our lives after the perfect example of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, chapter 3, verse 10 Paul says that I may know him, him being Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Thirdly, Christ is our confidence. We can know the power of Christ at work in our lives because he dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. We need, as Christians, to live as confident people. There is no reason for us not to be confident people because we have the Spirit of Jesus Christ living in us by the power of His Holy Spirit. We need to live as confident people, and you're not going to find that in the most recent self-help books. That's not where you're going to find the ability to be confident. We find our confidence in the rock who is Christ Jesus. We stress this all the time here at LifePoint, the importance of being in the Word. 
This is where we find our joy, our strength, our peace, our confidence. Because we see and we hear and we read about the God who dwells in us. So let us be a confident people who demonstrate Christ in us. Lastly, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ is our strength. This is a verse that is often taken out of context. A better translation of this verse is, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Meaning, in the context of the will of God for your life. Whatever Christ has for you to do, he will supply the power. Whatever gift he has given you, he will give you the power to exercise that gift. Paul is not saying that he can do all things. Paul's not saying that we can do all things. I can't go outside right now and jump over this building. I can't. But I can do all things which God has for me to do from the time he saved me until the time he calls me home. He has not given me the unlimited power to do anything that I want to do, but he will give me the ability to do all things in the context of his will for my life, and he will do the same for you. We will we'll get to all of this and more as we begin to slowly walk through this great letter, verse by verse. And I look forward to that journey with you. Let's pray together.